Praise the Lord. What a joy and honor to be with you tonight and then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And I've entitled this series for one of a theme, Encounters with God. Uh, when you read through the scriptures, and you can just do that right now in your mind, you can just go from generation generation, from Genesis to Revelation. As theologians, we're allowed to make up words. If you have a doctorate, you can do that. You can take the entire Bible, and from Genesis to Revelation, we just call it generation. That's how we work. And then what you do is you say, they say, whoever they are, they don't know. They say Genesis to Revelation is generation. So, But if you read from Genesis to Revelation, you'll find that the Bible records encounters that man and woman have with God. Some of them come under the judgment of God, and some of them come under the good hand of God. The word of the Lord comes to men, and He raises them up, and you see these encounters, the impact on their life, on their family, on their region, and on the nation, and sometimes even to nations. So in an encounter with God, it is for us who encounter God, but it is more important to see it for us, through us, to someone else. And then that encounter and the impact of that encounter will touch a realm beyond your life. Local, regional, national, and even international. And so it is out of these encounters that God shaped history. The Bible is a history it's an account of God working through healed men and women. God's revelation of salvation given by prophets and disciples and apostles carrying the Word of God. And you see these lives coming into a divine encounter. A divine encounter. It's man encountering God and God encountering man. Some of these encounters uh, uh, happen suddenly. It's not like this Man was searching for this encounter. A classic, and I'll come to this in a few minutes, is, is Saul on the Damascus Road. He's not looking for Jesus. If anything, he's looking to stop the work of Jesus. He wants to see it come to a grinding halt. He is in fact a tool of the devil. And he's not looking for Jesus, but Jesus is looking for him. And suddenly... There is this revelation of the risen Christ on this Damascus road. Suddenly, this bright shining light appears and Saul's life has a confrontation with heaven, with eternity. And his life is touched and changed. And out of that, the very thing he was wanting to destroy is accelerated. He begins to plant churches. He was going to shut churches down. Now he plants churches, builds and expands the kingdom, the reach of the kingdom. And the very thing that he was trying to do, kill the apostles and the disciples, he one day will pay the ultimate price and he himself would be martyred. Why? Because he had an encounter with the risen Christ. And so we see that in these divine encounters, sometimes people were positioned seeking God for a move. 
for heaven to come and touch them. And other times Jesus just shows up. So the point that I want to make is there is no exact formula. So I'm going to release you from performance. However, you can position your life that you're in a place where God can get to you easily. But many times, it is in spite of us. I was in a meeting, and I often refer to this meeting because it was a turning point for my own life. There were things that were taking place in the Spirit, in revival, that I personally didn't like. I didn't, I didn't approve the way it was being manifested, for one of another word. I thought it was a little disorderly, and I'm pretty conservative, and I wanted ministry to be decently and in order. But how many of you know that our measures and judgments are not always God's? How many of you know that you can have a mindset that you think this is order, but God's mind is different? Uh, For example, one of the things that God showed me was that as a gardener, I lay out my garden and I sculpture it and I blend the, God, the, the, the shape, the contours with my eye, with my imagination. And then God took me to a field and to a forest and He showed me how His order looks. Mine is all sculptured and perfect and His is so different. But yet it's ordered because within that Every species is existing off each other. There's this circle of life and everything has its place and position. But man, we want to manicure it. We want to line it up in straight lines. We, you, you see what I'm saying? Man's order, what we think is order and what God says is order, is sometimes two different things. So with this revival, I'm looking at it and I'm looking at it with the mind of a gardener in nice rows. Church, nice rows all properly spaced out, ushers taking their place, all positioned with their little baskets and their matching jackets because that's how we do things as men. It's like the military, everything lined up, one uniform. But the kingdom of God is diverse. There are big churches, small churches, churches with certain emphasis. Things are done differently as the expression of the Word of God is released through different people. Their personality, their style, their culture all comes into play. And then we read it from our culture. So I didn't like it. And um, a friend of mine was in this meeting and we were watching this video of revival, what we thought would was called revival. And uh, he... Now it gets to the point they want to pray for us as pastors. And the church is in a semicircle. The seating was arranged in a semicircle. So I'm sitting here on the side, and my friend is sitting over there. He's about three rows back. And he decides, I'm not going to be a hindrance to this meeting. I don't like this. I don't approve of it. I'm going to slip out. How many of you know that you have the right? The exit sign is lit. We don't lock the doors. We're not a cult. You can go when you want. So he's going to slip out. And this is friends. We're friends. We're colleagues in the ministry. We love each other. But he didn't want to be a hindrance. 
but he really didn't like the way this thing was going down. And as he started to get up, I just watched him. I was sitting there. Because when you're a pastor in a church, you see everything. It's like a parent. Your kids can get away with squat. Kids, you've got to listen to this. We know. We have eyes in the back of our head. You just can't see it. You pull a face behind us, we see it. Go make your bed. We see it. We Sometimes we just don't say anything because vengeance is ours. We have a time we come back at you. Sometimes when you're like 16 or 18, we let it go for years. And then suddenly we pounce on you. We say, no. And all that built up frustration just manifests in one single day. We see everything. Pastors, we see everything. We sit here. You think our back is turned to you. We know nothing. Let me tell you, our eyes are going to and fro. We watch the kids. We watch the parents. We watch the jab. This is for you. We watch. We see everything. We know everything. It's amazing. It's like God. He's, he's infinite in His knowledge. He's the beginning and the end. God gives us the supernatural download. I'm just kidding with you. But we do, we sense things, we see things. And I'm sitting here and I watch him. I can see my friend getting up. I watch him because you pick up every movement. And as he does this, he just starts flying. And he goes over two rows from a city. You try to do that. Even in your 40s, I think Louis was in his 40s at that stage. He got up in one swoop. And he dived over two rows of chairs and landed on the ground. And started receiving the very thing that he didn't like. In the way he didn't like. How many of you know God is sovereign? Now I know that God doesn't override our free will when it comes to salvation. But how many of you know God can get to you? And I'm sure in Louis' mind he prayed. He said, God, I want all that you've got for me. And then he saw something, he said, I don't like it, and he's getting up, and God said, I think it's about time I take you on that prayer that you prayed where you said, you want all that I've got for you. And he brought him down, and and Louis' life was changed. He became a carrier of revival, the very thing he disliked. He started going around the world, launching churches in revival in the glory, the very thing he was going to walk out. God arrested him in an encounter, and his life was changed. His ministry was changed beyond personality, beyond style. This was a revelation that was born in his heart. He had a little church. It's a great church. Now he's got churches all around the world related with him apostolically, flying through the air. It's like Saul on the Damascus Road. I'm going to destroy the church. I'm going to bring it down. Bam! Yes, Jesus, bright shining light. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What do you say to a bright shining light that says, why are you persecuting Who are you? I'm Jesus. Whoa! I remember seeing you in Jerusalem on the street preaching. You've changed somewhat. Well, I was dead and now I'm alive. At the right hand of the Father, I'm glorified. It's coming in the magnificence of the resurrection. 
what do you want me to do, Lord? His life is changed because of an encounter with God. It's not like God overrode His free will. And I'll tell you why I say that. Saul was engaged. I think Saul prayed a prayer on a couple of occasions. Because Jesus said, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. How many of you have wondered what the goads are? The goads are the farmers in those days. Now, listen, these are primitive days. So don't start listing me as a, an abuser of animals. I'm just teaching you biblical culture and history. The farmers would have a stick called a goad. It would be round on one side and pointed on the other. And they would prod the oxen with the goad. So if the ox wouldn't turn, he would prod them in the leg muscle and force them to turn to go the way of the farmer instead of the ox going and doing its own thing or if the ox wouldn't move he would prod him and the ox would start plowing you understand so the farmer would use a some translations say it's hard for you to kick against the pricks the the ouch and I think Saul even when Stephen was being stoned and his face began to shine and he's standing with the robes giving consent to the stonings, I wonder if he didn't say, oh God, I hope I'm not making a mistake. You've got to show me what I'm doing if this is right and wrong. You understand? I think there were moments where Saul's heart was coming under conviction. And I believe because God is sovereign, but He doesn't override the sovereignty of our free will there was a prayer that Saul prayed somewhere in the mix there and someone was praying for Saul the church was praying God we ask you to arrest our persecutor he's taking away our fathers and our mothers ripping them away from their kids he's trying to destroy the church but God don't bring judgment don't bring fire and punishment upon him reveal your love to him and save him God wouldn't it be awesome if he became a preacher of your word that would really get the attention of the religious generation that we're in. And, and God says, I'm going to take you at this thing. And bam, there's a Damascus Road encounter. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the prodding. I've been prodding you, man. And you've been violating the prodding. I've been trying to turn you towards salvation. And you've been hardening your heart. Well, now I'm coming to get you. And I'm going to show you what you're going to suffer I'm going to show you what's going to take place through your life. What do you want me to do? He loses his sight. Talk about an encounter having impact in your life. Saul is impacted inside and outside. Physically, he's about to see some change. His eyesight is going to go. The intensity of the light is going to blind him for three days about encounters talk about mystical talk about being ooh, kind of strange sometimes spectacular always supernatural God doesn't care, uh, come and entertain us with little magic acts but he's certainly very powerful because God is spirit and he operates in the realms of the spirit supernatural and so Saul is having this encounter this divine encounter with the risen Christ and his life is being altered dramatically. Let's call it 
a new creation. Why do I say that? Because he confessed Jesus as Lord. If you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you shall be saved. When he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What he was in fact saying, I believe you died. I believe you rose again. I believe. And I'm calling you my Lord from this moment. Jesus said, I'm going to show you what you're going to suffer. He says, I can take it. The very thing you've been doing is going to be done to you. Your life is going to be harassed. You're going to be stoned. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be whooped. He didn't go into this blindly even though he was blind. He went into it in revelation. There are things you're going to have to go through for my name. Nevertheless, the compelling clarity of the vision, the audibility of the vision, Jesus was speaking to him audibly. Even the people traveling with Saul could hear Jesus. They couldn't see him, but they could hear. Can you imagine the impact on their lives? An encounter of such clarity, how word would spread. Three days later, Ananias is praying. Go and pray for Saul. But 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 he's the one who's trying to destroy us. God, like, as if I don't know. <laughs> well, thanks for bringing that to my attention. I was totally unaware of this. Go, because he's going to be a mighty vessel to the Jewish people and to the nations. An encounter, a revelation, fills his heart, a vision. In the vision, he goes and he prays for this man. And his eyes are opened and he's filled with the Spirit. And immediately begins to preach the gospel. Why? Because of an encounter with God. Some people will boast in their encounter as if the encounter is the approval. Let me tell you something. If you never saw a bright shining light, and if you never heard an audible voice, and if you never fell to the ground, and you never lost your eyesight and then had it opened by a man who came and prayed for you three days later, your salvation is no less authentic. Your encounter by faith is no less authentic. Your calling into the work of God is no less authentic. Your vision and calling is as credible and real as Saul's on the Damascus road. However, I will concede this, that sometimes when you've had such a clear vision, it's because you're going to need it. When you've been beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, faced hunger, danger in the city, on the road, your life has been harassed almost every day. How many of you know that you could get a little discouraged? based on circumstances but the clarity of that vision would persuade him like he said to King Agrippa I have not been disobedient to this heavenly vision that imprint is so clear within him that he would not forget his origins even when circumstances said you're wasting your time this is not working out look at the fruit of your life 
challenge after challenge. How many of you know he had every right to give up if you looked at it in the natural? Some of the very churches he planted, you'd think they would honor him. They dishonored him. Men and sons that he raised up dishonored him. Guess what? It happens today as well. But he was secure in his identity and calling because of the clarity. And I say, if you have such a strong encounter, don't boast in it. You're probably going to need it. Somewhere down the line, you're going to be reminded of your need for that clarity. And so we see that Saul had a great encounter on that Damascus road. And out of that, ministry was birthed. Out of that, nations were touched, raised. The gospel went in the face of hostility. He did an awesome work. Supernatural ministry emanated out of his spirit because of an encounter with Jesus. So we see that what encounters do is they accelerate our lives. They enlarge our capacity. They transform us. They mobilize us. Now within that encounter are many dynamics. There is the dynamic of the impact on those with you, around you. There is the dynamic of how it affects you emotionally, how it affects you mentally, how it affects you physically. Some people fall under the power of God. Some people will shake under the power of God. Some people will weep under the power of God. Some people may even laugh under the power of God. Some people will tremble. Some people will run. Some people will shout. Some people will dance. There are all kinds of ways people respond to the invasions of God's glory that touches their lives. That's not the measure of your spirituality. Your response to the glory is not the measure of your spirituality. I'll give you an example. Two men come into the same meeting. Let's call them Bob and John. They sit next to each other. And the power of God falls on both of these men. How many of you have seen that happen before? And Bob slips to the ground and he starts to shake. Power surging through him. Ah! And he's weeping. And then half an hour later, he's laughing. And when they, they, they're wanting to shut the building, he's still lying on the ground. They, they drag him out. He has a designated driver to get him home. He's so God-saturated when you look at him physically that he's not even able to walk out the meeting. How many of you have seen that happen? How many of you have had that happen to you? You can't doubt it. You can't. I mean, these are not drunk as you suppose. Why? Because they look drunk under the power of God. Those men saw fall to the ground. They heard. They saw. They too fell under the power. They weren't even the ones being addressed. That has an impact upon your life. And so then you've got John, who's under the same intensity of glory, but he's sitting quiet, meditating. If you look at him, there may be a slight 
tear in his eye. Just a little bit there. Just a little bit there. He's not bawling. He's not rolling on the ground. He's not banging his hand. He's not jumping up and down, dancing, spinning around, running. He's just quiet. So, some weeks pass. John is prompt to pay his bills. He operates his life in integrity. He's sweet. He's passionate about the word. He's loyal in his church. He's generous in the ministry. Bob, who we all would immediately think, he was really zapped by God. He's still got a bad temper. He's late with his bills. He's unfaithful in his church. Who is the spiritual one yet? You don't have to be a rocket scientist. Come on. John! Thank you very much. At least one of my students should have come up with the right answer there. John! The intensity of the touch of God doesn't guarantee maturity. The intensity of the manifestation of the Spirit and the impact of the Spirit on your life doesn't guarantee that you will go and do what God gives you to do. How many of you know that? Jonah, the word of the Lord came to him. He went in the opposite direction. King Saul was told to kill all the the Amalekites, to kill the king, but he kept the king alive. He kept the best of the sheep. He kept the best of the oxen for himself and for the people. He partially obeyed. Yet the word of the Lord came to him. You'd think if the word of the Lord came to you with such clarity that it spelt out, kill them all. How many of you know if you hear the word that clear from God that you are kind of obliged, kind of obliged to do it? But people don't. And so the maturity is not in how you look under the glory. It's the evidence of it is seen in your life in obedience, in surrender. You understand, they came under the same glory. They respond differently. There is no biblical mandate how you to look under the power of God. There is no biblical mandate of how you to respond under the power of God. You can shout or you can be quiet. You can cry or you can laugh or you may be quiet. It doesn't matter. What matters is what are you going to do with what God gave you? That's maturity. That's spirituality. Saul could have gone and kept persecuting the church. He could have got saved, went into business and never fulfilled the ministry of God. It's quite possible. He could have gone on that first mission to Damascus, got lowered over the wall and said, listen, I'm checking out of this. This is chaotic. I want to pay this kind of a price. How many of you know people back out of the call of God? They pray for a move of God, then when the move of God comes, there's no capacity for the move of God. They pray for the ministry to be awakened in their life. When the ministry comes to their life, they have no time for it. They're too busy. They're too enwrapped in their their affairs of everyday life. That there's no time to pray. There's no time to study. There's no time to be a witness. There's no time to serve in their church. Someone else will have to do it. Or the job is unfulfilled. And then we criticize the church and we say, well, the church is really weak. When in fact it's weak because your part is not there. Your gift is not there. Your ministry is not in, in, you're not praying. 
Oh, look at the attack on the church. They must be living a life of compromise. No, you're not holding up the, 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 the shield. You're not surrounding the pastors with your prayer. You're not praying in the glory. You're coming in as a spectator. Oh, the church isn't as spiritual as it should be. No, you're not as spiritual as you should be. And so it's possible that you can have an encounter with God and do nothing with it. Even the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, stir up the gift that is within you through the laying of hands. hands." In other words, there was an impartation into Timothy. In that impartation, gifts were released. But Timothy was doing nothing with it. And Paul says, listen, dude. This is Leon's unpublished translation. Listen, dude. You need to do something with what God gave you. When I laid hands, something was imparted to you. What are you doing with it? Stir it up. Get it ablaze so that there's progress in your life. Let them see the the evidence of your anointing, of your ministry. In other words, we have an obligation to do our part. God does His part in the encounter. But we have to do our part with that that God gives us. And that's where a lot of the encounters peter out. They start with a blaze of glory and then down the line it's like business as usual. You can't have business as usual when you've had an encounter with God. Saul's life was not business as usual. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was the murderer. I was the chiefest of sinners. Now I'm a new creation. If any man being Christ is a new creation, the old has passed away. That's my former manner of conduct. I was like that. I'm not like that anymore. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not embarrassed by Jesus. I'm not trying to destroy the church. I want the church to grow, to advance. And so we see the encounter awakens ministry in our lives, just like Saul. In the book of Revelation, John on the island of Patmos. He's there for um, the gospel. Let's read it in um, chapter 1 and we'll start in verses 12 to 18. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Remember I said these encounters can be mystical. Now, John was praying. John was, the Bible says, in the Spirit. And I, and I have to think, he was positioned for an encounter with Jesus. He had been persecuted. He had been sentenced to death. He couldn't die, so they banished him to an island of thieves, of criminals, and political dissidents. And you would think that he could have been feeling sorry for himself. He could have been singing, Why me, Lord? What have I done to deserve this? I thought you said whatever I put my hand to, I would succeed. This doesn't look like success for me. I'm on an island starving. There's no water. There's no food. I'm having to work in this quarry. Uh, This is not success. He could have doubted God's goodness. 
But he didn't. He stayed sweet in his spirit. And instead of complaining, he begins to worship, to pray. He's in the spirit. And I ask myself, what does in the spirit look like? Does it mean in the spirit, staggering under the power of God? How many of you know the power of God can hit you and you can stagger? How many of you know that you can shake? And then some people will get up and they don't know anything about the manifestations of God touching a person's life and they'll say, watch out for that crazy old lady in the church. She's going to start to shake and prophesy. But they don't know the dynamics of the Spirit. They just think she's putting it on. I mean, you've got to be pretty sick to wake up in the morning and say, oh, I think today I'm just going to draw attention to myself. I'm going to go into church. I'm going to sit there, I'm going to wait, and then I'm going to start to shake. I mean, come on. But people will be quick to criticize it because they don't know what they're talking about. They start to touch the holy things of God. And maybe every now and again, maybe every now and again, maybe one in a thousand is weak, is immature, is putting on a false front. How many of you know people can put on a false front? But we'll throw out the whole thing. We'll throw out the move of God because one flake, one weirdo, we're just like, everyone who gets touched is weird. Listen, you can go to a lawyer and that lawyer can be sick, man. He can be ripping you off, pretending to be writing letters and he's not saying he's going to defend your case and he's not even interested. He doesn't even page through the books. He goes in totally unprepared to defend you. How many of you know that you can get corrupt lawyers? Yet, how many of you notice the universities are full of lawyers going in? They haven't thrown out the system. Look at our political system. It's pretty sick, man. And yet people still keep voting. Doctors can be corrupt too, but yet people keep going to the doctors. You understand, you don't throw the whole thing out because of one bad doctor, one bad preacher, one bad lawyer. You understand, we keep using lawyers, we keep using doctors, we keep studying. Why? Because in the midst of it, there are more good than bad. Yet people will write the move of God off. They'll... I'm, I'm not interested in this. You may be quenching the Spirit of God. You may be walking away from divine destiny because you don't want to make a fool of yourself. Listen, you've made a fool of yourself so many times already in your life. What's one more time anyway? God doesn't embarrass you. There is a grace that comes upon you. Saul didn't dust himself off and go, whoo, man, that was embarrassing. You understand? Can you imagine John on the island of Patmos? He has a revelation of Jesus in glory. He can go, whoo, I hope that people don't think I'm weird. I hope authors aren't going to criticize me and write books about me and say how weird I was, how unbalanced I was. You understand? When you're in that intensity of glory, there is a grace upon you. And how many of you know that some people will write books against it? 
And some people will criticize what they don't know. But how many of you know in the midst of it, God is there. And are we concerned about people, the fear of man or the fear of the Lord? I choose the fear of the Lord any day. The fear of man brings torment to you because eventually you can't do everything to please everyone all the time anyway. So if you're going to please anyone, please God. If you're going to be open to anything, be open to God. The power of God was all over my life. I'm lying on the ground. I'm laughing. I'm crying. I'm shaking under the power of God. And if you know me, that's not Leon. I'm not given to emotionalism. But when the power of God comes upon you, it can affect your emotions. And I'm thinking, while God is touching me with such intensity, I can barely take it. And I'm thinking, this is weird. And I'm thinking, God, you said the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And the way I interpreted that is when you prophesy, you're in control. And I'm, and I'm saying to God in my mind, I'm under the power of God. I'm saying, God, I don't like this because I'm out of control. You said I would be on, in control of this situation. He said to me, you're not prophesying. You're receiving what I've got for you. You prayed for a download. And now I'm giving it to you and you're questioning it. And so I said to God, God, you said, <laughs> this was a heavy, you said, that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. I don't have control. He said self-control isn't to shut me out your life. It's to shut sin out of your life. I pulled out my favorite Pentecostal scripture, the one that goes next to cleanliness, is next to godliness the other one which is God is a perfect gentleman how many of you have heard that one if you've been in Pentecost for 40 years you would have heard that one God is a perfect gentleman he said to me I'm not a gentleman I'm God I'm God and I knew what he meant that I'm not playing manners to appeal to man I'm God the creator of the universe my will supersedes all others. And I realize that sometimes, as the Apostle Paul says, if we appear to be beside ourselves or mad, as some would say, we're not. You understand, people could call us crazy. People can call us weird. It doesn't matter. What does God say? On the day of Pentecost, they called them drunk. They weren't drunk. They were God-possessed. They were God-filled. They were speaking in other tongues. They should have been applauded for being surrendered to God. The future generation of world changes. But instead they mocked them and called them drunks. They weren't drunk. They were God filled. But that's the way the world looks at people under the influence of God. That's the way the religious system views it. If it's not done their way, it's error, it's demonic. It's strange that it's always demonic until it hits them. When the joy was falling, there was this preacher in Illinois. I was in Springfield, Illinois. He was in Springfield, Illinois. And he had just preached a message, or he wanted to preach a message, how that this joy was not the truth. It wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was demonic. 
How many of you know that sometimes God can arrest you along your Damascus road? And he got up to stand behind the pulpit. And he was, gonna, he was about to start and say, Today I want to address this weird thing that people are calling the joy of the Lord. And he was going to address how demonic it was. And he fell to the ground laughing. He was a God seeker. And after an hour of lying behind his pulpit, he pulled himself up and he's staggering under the power of God. And he said to the church, and he threw his notes on the side, he said, well, that's so much for that. This is God. It's funny, it's always the devil until you get zapped. And so I'm telling the story because someone told me the story and I'm preaching. And I see this hand waving in the church. And I keep telling my story because I'm used to hands waving in the church. See that hand, God bless you. See that hand, God bless you. Eventually the guy can't contain himself. He says, brother, I don't want to interrupt, but I'm the man. I'm that pastor. I said, come up, brother. And I let him tell his story. Well, the place erupted in great celebration but it's strange that it's always the devil and if it's not the devil it's the flesh until you get it oh that shaking is the flesh that laughter is the flesh that crying is the flesh they're just trying to get attention to themselves but until you get it you can criticize it but once you get it it's strange you not only want it for yourself you want everyone in the world to have it yeah oh Saul I'm going to go start preaching Jesus. He immediately begins to preach Jesus. The very thing he was trying to stop, he now promotes. John is in the Spirit. What does in the Spirit look like? Does it mean falling, shaking, crying, laughing, running, crawling on the ground, getting carried out the car, having a designated driver to get you home? Is that being in the Spirit? It could be. I believe in the Spirit is spiritual stability, maturity, walking in love, walking in faith, and doing the will of God. It's not a difficult thing to understand. Let me say it again. It's maturity. It's stability. It's the balanced life. You've grown up in God. It's walking in love. Why? Because if it's not done in love, it's... A clanging symbol that has no lasting value. So whatever we do has to be done in, in love. It's got to be done in faith because without faith it's impossible to please God. And anything that's not done in faith is sin, the Bible says. So we know that it's got to be in faith. It's got to be in the Spirit. It's got to be in love. So, And it's got to be in obedience to what God told you to do. So when you do that, you are in the Spirit. You may not be shaking, but you're in the Spirit. So I don't know what John looked like when he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I think he was merely just focused on God, worshiping God in the stillness of his heart. He wasn't rolling on the ground. He wasn't crying. He wasn't shouting. He wasn't rebuking, pulling down, pushing up. He was just simply kneeling before God. And then suddenly, he has this encounter. And he turns and he sees seven golden lampstands and in the midst of seven lampstands one like the son of man clothed with a garment down to his chest a golden band his head is and hair 
were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass uh, refined in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters. How many of you know that's pretty mystical stuff? And God allows us to see what some people don't see. And he said old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. In other words, he's saying... In the outpouring of the Spirit, there are mystical things that are going to take place. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. That's mystical. It's not always going to be according to the mindsets of our generation. Especially now, when people call evil good and good evil, you hardly want that to be the voice of reason and balance. If anything is going to determine what's balance, what's order, what's right, what's wrong, it must be the Bible, it must be the Word of God, because heaven and earth will pass away, but that will stand forever. They can call evil good as much as they want, but when the Bible says it's evil, it's evil. When the Bible says it's good, it's good. It doesn't matter what popular opinion says. And that's why we have to be shaped by the renewing of our mind to conform our thinking to the Word of God and not to the spirit of the age. Don't be conformed to this world, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind by the washing of the water of the Word. And so we want to have transformed minds. And so we have to look at this in the renewed mind, not in the value system of society. Let me tell you something, and I'm not prophesying. It's getting worse. The world's thinking is deteriorating so fast I can barely keep up with it. There is such an onslaught against the church when the Bible says he's going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I'm telling you, the devil is moving at such a pace, recognizing that his hour is short. He is furious and he wants to mute and silence the church. He wants to stop us from our ministry. He wants us to be church attenders living miserable, half-baked, lukewarm lives. He wants us to be weak-kneed and gutless. He wants us to be average like all the rest. He wants us to have no witness. He wants us to operate with fear, with doubt, with unbelief, just like the religious world. He doesn't want us to have faith for miracles. He doesn't want us to operate in the realms of the Spirit because that's His demise, that's His defeat. And we advance the cause of the Gospel. We're not going to win this world in the arm of the flesh. We're not going to win this world by being politically correct. We're not going to win this world with passionless, indifferent lives. We're not going to impact our generation by being whitewashed sepulchers. We're not going to do the job if we don't have the passion, the zeal of the Lord in our hearts and in our, in our minds, giving us direction, purpose, something bigger than ourselves. We find that in the revelation of Jesus because it looks like the ministry of John has come to a grinding halt. Like, this is where you're at. You're trapped on an island. You're going nowhere, bud. I've got you. The devil is celebrating. I've got you where I want you. I would rather have you dead. But if you're not dead, you're trapped on an island with dissidents and thieves. Hardened criminals. Win them. No one cares a bit about them. Go and win them. 
And here's John pressing into the glory of God. God, what do you want me to do? Looks like my life and ministry has come to a grinding halt. Looks like the churches are going to be fragmented without the leaders in place. Uh, God, I still had a work to do on the earth. And he has this encounter. And the Bible calls it the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation. Apocalypse. What is apocalypse? I mean, if you've heard that there was a movie called Mad Max 2, is it? I, I don't know. I didn't see it. I don't like those kind of movies. But Mad Max uh, is like a post-apocalyptic generation that have survived these devastating things. And so we view apocalyptic as devastating events. Is that right? Our Western mind sees apocalypse as end times, devastating times. It actually means to pull back the curtain to expose to view. And it's a revelation of Jesus. It's not a revelation of end times. It's a revelation of Jesus. And an encounter must always point to Jesus. Saul had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus changed his life. John has an encounter with Jesus. When he thinks it's done, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I was slain, but I'm alive forevermore. In other words, they don't have your destiny in their hands. I do. He's revealing himself as, I'm the one with authority that's greater than Rome. They can sentence you to death, but they can't win. And he has a revelation, and it's mystical, because it's a spiritual dimension. And God shows him the resurrected Christ. This is John, who was the intimate friend with Jesus. Lay on his breast. you understand? This is a man who knew Jesus in the flesh, but now he's going to get to know Jesus in resurrected glory. He's going to enter into the realms beyond the veil of the flesh and hear things and see things that pertain to Israel and to the future of humanity for that generation, the next generation, until Jesus comes. That book is good for those who were, for those who are, and those who will be. And in these mystical revelations, the will, the destiny of God's people is brought forth to show that the church succeeds, the gates of hell will be uh, destroyed and pulled down, that the devil's end is the lake of fire, that there is no victory to the devil and to society, the kingdom prevails. Jesus put it so vividly when he says, I have the keys of hell and of death. Hallelujah. In other words, I'm in control of this, not the devil, not the religious system, not the political world. I'm in control. Listen, they can try shut us down. They can try silence us. But I'm telling you, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God is raising up a victorious people, a people that know their God who will do exploits and it will be done in the power of the Spirit of God. And for that, we need encounters. Because out of that revelation, John's life is freed. The emperor dies, and he goes back to Asia. <laughs> when he thought it was all over, and the devil thought it was all over, out of the revelation, the will of God comes forth. When John had this revelation with Jesus, 
he fell at his feet as dead. You see, when you're in this encounter, there is a response. John, who knew him intimately, fell. You'd think if you knew him intimately, and you'd been an apostle for years, that you would stand. But he fell under the intensity of the light and the glory of God. There was no catches. And then Jesus laid his hand upon him, his right hand, and said to him, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. There is always an emotional response, a physical response. But what we want to see is, what is the ultimate response? The evidence of what we do with what we are given. What we do with what we are given. In the book of Revelation, in John, in Revelation chapter 4, in verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things that must take place after this. In other words, God is saying that He is accessible, that we can draw near, that we can come to Him, that we can approach Him. He's not shutting the door to us. There are no limitations. There are no boundaries. There are no obstacles that can keep you away from the glory of God. Come up here, He said. In other words, we can access the throne of grace at any time that we want. For in the throne of grace, there is help and mercy that we can obtain in a time of need. The blood of Jesus will do for you what you can't do for yourself. Will make a way for you where you are unable to make the way. Jesus Himself is that way into the glory of God. And when you have an encounter like that, your life is transformed, radically transformed. You have a download in the Word, in the Spirit, in the glory of God. Your life is changed. He will empower you for holy service. Passion will be ignited in your life. Stuff that is around your life hindering you, causing you to struggle, fail and fall, will be cut off from your life. And you'll be liberated in your mind and in your body. You'll be changed. You'll be refreshed. You'll be renewed. And you'll be accelerated in your destiny towards God and the things of God. We're talking about being positioned before God. I want to close with this and then I'm going to pray for people. How many of you are ready for the touch of God upon your life? One of the very first messages I shared in this church way back was the first message I remember vividly because I have pretty good recall. I taught on the conditions of heart for revival way back. And I want to share the conditions of heart to be positioned before God from that same scripture in Matthew chapter 5 verses 3 to 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the weak meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I see in these Beatitudes the conditions of heart 
to get what God's got for your life. How many of you know when Jesus died, He said it is finished. And He gave gifts to men. He gave ministries to men. And He provided for us. Paul puts it this way that we must lay hold of all that Christ has laid hold of for us. In other words, there's stuff that God's got for your life that you've got to appropriate by faith. You've got to go after it because God has offered it to you, but you've got to go after it. You've got to press in. You've got to go after what God's got for your life. You don't get these things by being indifferent. These things are given to the passionate, to the seekers, to the hungry, to the thirsty, to the desperate. Many people don't have encounters with God because they, they have the mindset, God, if you want to get me, you know where to find me. You've got Saul on the Damascus Road. You can find me on my way. That is, that is really a very shallow and spiritual way of thinking. We should be positioned before God, waiting for, for His operations in our life. We should be pressing into the things of the Spirit, not waiting for them to come to us. We should be going after them. James puts it this way. He says, if you draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. It doesn't say He's drawing near to you, draw near to Him. It says, if you will draw near to Him, He'll draw near to you. If you press in, if you ask, if you call, He will be found. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I like to call it bankrupt of self-reliance and independence. We need to be bankrupt of self-reliance and independence, which is very hard for the Western worldview. In biblical culture, it's easier to be submitted, to be a team player than in a Western worldview, especially in America because we are raised in independence. The 4th of July is our most celebrated day in America. What's that day? The day of our independence. And so we, we pride ourselves in independence. Now, I'm not talking about being connected to Britain. I'm talking about a spiritual thing that challenges authorities and challenges the authority of God. Forget about challenging, submit to those who have the rule over you, who watch out after your spirit. Forget about biblical submission to godly leaders. Let's just talk about submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. People struggle with submitting to God. Forget about submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Forget about submitting to those who watch out after your soul. Let's leave that on the, on the side burner. Let's just talk about submitting to God. We have a problem even submitting to authorities. The Bible says submit to those who are the governing uh, powers. Now that doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything they do. It means that you live as a law-abiding citizen. And you all know that we break the law. You get on the highway, the board says 55 miles, you go 65 because you know they don't catch you for 10 over. I'm just using that as an illustration. We all do. Highway says 65, you go 75. Why? Because that's what people do. They challenge the system. They challenge the system wherever they can. And uh, that's why our jails are full. 
Because people are lawbreakers. Our jails are full. Because if it says, don't sell drugs, people sell drugs. Don't break into someone's home, they break into someone's home. Pay your taxes, they don't pay their taxes. They commit white-collar crime, they commit violent crime. They commit crimes against children, against adults, against elderly. People mug old ladies in the street to, to get their purse with $10 in it. Sometimes killing them. Thinking, well, I'll get the money. And then they're arrested and they get to jail and they say, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I was, you know, and they have lawyers that will try and twist the law on technicalities to get them free. And then when, you know, you know what I'm saying? People break the law. People want to avoid taxes, local taxes. Do anything to twist it as much as possible. Because we've been raised in independence, challenging the system. People who have been in the military know this. Uh, one of the great things in the military is to see what you can get away with. When they say run, you run as long as they're watching you. When they're not watching, you sit down. When you see them coming, you start running again. Because we're raised to see if we can beat the system. And people are raised in the spirit of rebellion. And so the church has a lot of rebellion in it. And what's rebellion? It's like the sin of witchcraft. It's doing your own thing. It's violating the will of God. And we wonder why we don't see the power of God like we ought to. This isn't a, a challenge to you because you, yeah, but the Bible says not forsaking the assembling together as is the custom. So people were starting to back away from church even way back when Hebrews was written. And he said, you ought to be gathering together with greater intensity, even as you see the end times getting, what do we see as we're getting closer to end times? More and more people backing away from church. Why? Because they're operating in independence. You can call it busyness. You can call it what you want. But many times it's an excuse. Because they don't want to rearrange their lives for the things of God because it's not important. And you can't have and be positioned for encounters with God by operating in independence and rebellion. It's the healed at heart that goes, that is open and uh, able to receive what God's got for them. The second is, blessed are they that mourn. The mourning heart is the repentant heart. The heart that doesn't repent like politicians when they're caught out, they say, I'm sorry. You understand? That's not repentance. Repentance is turning away from what you're doing and going towards what God's called you to do. People don't repent. They stay attached to the things that limit their lives. And guess what? How does God get to you when you're doing your own thing? People know it's to give, but they live in selfishness. They need to repent. They, need, they, they know they ought to pray. The Bible says they ought to pray and not grow weak. But they grow weak, they don't pray. And, and they wonder why they're not seeing the supernatural in their lives. Because they're living in compromise, in rebellion. And then... They're not pressing into the glory of God. They're running away from the glory of God. And they don't even repent of it. 
They know they ought to study the Word. They don't. And they wonder, why doesn't this stuff work in my life? Because they're not giving themselves to it. And then when they're confronted with it, they'll agree with you, but then a day later go right back to doing what they were doing. In other words, they don't back away from it. I see in this church you have a, a, a program that deals with addictions. What do you call it? Celebrate recovery. People have addictions to alcohol, to drugs, to perversions, uh, to appetites. But what about addictions to self? In the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, unloving. In other words, they're not lovers of God. Lovers of God are hungering after the things of God. And when you're not hungering after the things of God, you ought to be repentant. You ought to deal with it. You ought to mourn and say, God, I want to get back to you. But people don't. They just stay where they're at. And they wonder, why don't we have a move of God? Why don't we see the supernatural? I'll tell you why. Because they're not repentant. Repentance will create an atmosphere for God to move. The third is, blessed are the meek. What is meek? Meek has been teachable. When you're unteachable, you'll not receive what God's got for your life. I was thinking of that word this morning, uh, that we, we ought to receive the engrafted word that is able to save our souls. He was giving that to people that were saved. So how can the Word save your souls? Because if you get the Word, it will save your soul from that thing that the Word is addressing. You're already saved and going to heaven, but you need to be saved in your thinking, in your doing, in your behavior, in your health, in your money. And so the Word brings salvation to that area of your life. But it's the teachable that will get it. And then it says, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst. In other words, you have to cultivate a spiritual appetite for righteousness, for revival, for the move of God, for the touch of God. If you have no appetite, there'll be no capacity for God to meet you in. Your spiritual appetite creates the atmosphere or the capacity for God to move. If you have a small appetite, guess what? You're only going to get a small amount. Your capacity is created by your desire. If you desire... God will meet the desires of your heart. If you have small desire, that's what you're going to get. If you have great desire, that's what you're going to get. If you have small appetite, that's what you're going to get. You go to a restaurant and you have no appetite, you'll order a little side dish. But if you're very hungry, you'll look for the biggest platter. On the th- your, and guess what comes? The biggest platter. If you've got the hunger, the provision will be there. The, the supply will be there. God satisfies the heart of the hungry. True hunger will not be denied by God until it is satisfied. He said, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. God will fill the heart of the hungry. I believe that we should have the God cry like the psalmist, as the deer pants for the water brook, so, so, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's what we ought to have. We ought to be desiring God, running after Him. I love Psalm 63 and verse 1. Oh God, You are my God. Early will I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh longs for You in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. 
Why is he longing for him in that dry place? Because he knows he is the provider of the supply that will give drink in spite of the environment. God will meet the hungry. God will meet the thirsty. What's the God cry of your heart? What are we hungering for? Our spiritual appetite creates an atmosphere for an encounter with God. It's called faith. It's called longing. It's called passion. It's called desire. It's called repentance. If we will position our hearts, God has a capacity to move. Tonight I want to pray for people for the touch of God upon your life. The refreshing of God upon your life. I'm believing that this week as you press into the Word, as you press into personal worship and personal prayer, that you'll have encounters even in your room, in your car, in your sleep, in dreams. How many of you know that you can be in prayer and you can go into a trance? God can give you a vision. God can give you a dream. God can speak to you in an audible voice. I'm believing this week for encounters in a personal way as well as in a corporate way. And so I want to plow the ground of your heart, the fallow ground. I want to get it ready for these encounters that you be positioned in a place where it's easy for God to get to you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. This allocated times where it's closer to get to God. I'm telling you, we're living in a time where it's easy to get to God. You know why? Because there is sin and darkness in the world and where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. When things look like that, they're worst. The church's hour is at its best. Things are shutting all around us. Things are, are, are going wrong all around us. People are backing away from God. This isn't a time to back away from God and back away from church. This is the time to press in, to draw near. Why? Because grace abounds much more. God wants to touch your life. God wants to revive your spirit. God wants to heal your body. Nothing is impossible with God and nothing is impossible with you if you will believe. Let's stand. Let's pray. While I was ministering, God was speaking to you at different levels. God was addressing things in your life. God was challenging you on your spirituality, on your lack of, or in your partial. I don't know what God was speaking to you in. All I know is that I know, having been in church and sat in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages, 40 years of ministry, that God speaks to people. I can be speaking on one thing and God is speaking to your heart on issues, on areas. And uh, I want you to respond to the Spirit of God that used my voice to be His voice to speak to you. God does nothing on the earth without first revealing it to His servants, the prophets. While I was speaking, the prophetic word was coming through my lips to your heart. God was addressing you and tonight you want to say God I need a fresh touch from heaven I need you to fill my life I need you to touch my life 
I've grown cold, I need to become hot. I've grown lukewarm, I need to be hot. I'm hot, but God, I know that I can be hotter still. I want more. I don't know where you're at in your walk with God. If you're weak, I know that there is strength. Let the weak say, I'm strong. There is strength to the weak. If you're poor, the Bible says, let the poor say, I'm rich. There is provision for the poor. God wants to supply for the poverty in your life. If you're weak, God wants to touch you. If you're poor, God wants to touch you. If you're strong, the Bible says, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Then He wants to give you strength, even above the strength that you're already in. If you lack knowledge, God wants to give you wisdom, revelation, knowledge. God wants to give you skills and ability. God wants to impart gifts and resurrect dormant gifts in your life. I don't know what God spoke to you in. Ministries have been neglected that ought to be revived. God's given assignments that you've never done. God told you to do something, you never did it. You like Jonah, you went on your own thing. The only thing is you didn't get swallowed by a fish. You just got so busy in your life, you got swallowed by that. And tonight God wants to vomit you out of that fish, out of that busyness, out of that thing that has robbed you of your calling, gifting, and put you back in your ministry. Who must speak into tonight? God's addressing people's lives that their areas is challenging. Would just raise your hand. God's been speaking to you. Things have been neglected in the spirit. It's time for revival in your heart, in your ministry, in your gifting. I want to awaken that area tonight in the name of Jesus. I want to apply the blood of the Lamb to that guilt that has been assailing your mind, telling you you're unworthy. As a citizen of the kingdom, you're unworthy. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all guilt. Sets you free. Those that God has been speaking to about, you've neglected your walk, your spirituality, your ministry. I want to pray for you for resurrection life to fall upon you. Come stand here right now. Get out from where you are. I want to pray for you that God would resurrect your ministry and your anointing, your vision, your calling. Areas that have been neglected to be revived. Promises that have been broken to be reawakened. That you won't get the harvest that you deserve, but that you get the harvest of grace and mercy. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad that God's grace is greater than our failure? Hallelujah. Than our frailty. A while ago I was ministering on the need for the Spirit of God. And I got to pray for the person and as I got to him I could hear him praying. He was saying, oh God, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy. I want to tell you that the blood of Jesus makes you worthy to receive all that God's got for your life. In yourself you may feel unworthy, but the blood of Jesus declares that you are worthy. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be worshipped. But the blood of Jesus makes you worthy to receive all that God's got for your life because the blood speaks louder than your failure, louder than your guilt, louder than the things that you've neglected. Where you've neglected, the blood of Jesus says, not guilty. Where you deserve a harvest of the corruption that you have sown. 
Instead, you get the harvest of the blessing of God upon your life. Because His blood cancels out your failure. Hallelujah. That's why we so need the cross, the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. We're going to pray in a few seconds. I just want to awaken you in desire, passion, hunger. Because people come feeling, oh man, I've let God down. When the prodigal came, the father embraced him. Tonight, God embraces you. He doesn't say, you deserve to be a servant. He calls you a son. He doesn't leave you naked and ashamed. He clothes you, puts shoes on your feet, gives you a ring on your finger. The seal of authority gives back to you. Not three weeks time, not a month when you've proven yourself. He gives it to you instantly. Hallelujah. You may feel unworthy, but His blood says you are worthy. You may feel disqualified, but He says, I'm your qualification. I'm your qualification. Not your discipline. Not your morality. Not your behavior. The blood of Jesus is your qualification. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask this front row if you'd all take three paces forward the rest stay back just the front row just give me a bit of room that's just about there that's fabulous I want to pray for you then I'm going to pray for the next row after this that God would touch your life tonight hallelujah reawaken destiny mission ministry his will the things that are dormant and inactive to be reactivated in the spirit right now in the name of Jesus. Res-